Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transcend us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today is my great pleasure to talk with Marina Pissaris about writing and her favorite books and her amazing atlas. But first, let's pause for some information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Rabella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So Marina, you've got an amazing background, uh, coastal education, coastal sustainability, and now coastal author of a phenomenal book. What I'm not sure everyone, though, has had the pleasure of meeting you. So what's your background? Thank you, Leslie. Um, Well, I actually grew up in a California coastal town, and so I spent my youth playing uh, in the Redwoods and at the shore. And um, I got my first dive license when I was 15, and that was that was the moment for me when I realized that I would need to be working uh, at working with or living at the shore. Um, it was such a different and beautiful world that I had never experienced. Um, and even though I had been surfing and swimming and playing, actually being under the water and being um, seeing what what that world is all about really changed something in me. And so a lot of my heroes when I was growing up were, um, you know, folks like Eugenia Clark, the shark lady and Sylvia Earle. And um, pretty much throughout my life, when I realized I get too far from the sea, either with my uh, career or with my, you know, where I live, I realized I need to get back there. Yeah. And fortunately, it's all around us. So it's not too hard to get to, which we really appreciate. Um, you had a lot to do with the King Tides phenomena, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, when I worked for NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, I was working on a program that was getting the science at most of the federal agencies, so you know, NASA, NOAA, USGS, getting that science, uh, emerging science about climate change out into the hands of local decision makers. So um, city planners, municipal agencies. And one of the things that we realized was that average people weren't really aware of what was happening. This was 2009. So um, just, you know, people who weren't coastal geomorphologists um, weren't really aware of what the potential impacts of climate change would be. It was something that was really distant from people. So maybe they'd seen something in the media about, you know, drowning polar bears, which if you care about polar bears is very concerning, but it doesn't really 
hit in your own life. And so a a number of us who were working in coastal management agencies in um, California and Washington and Oregon and Australia, we're looking, we're trying to figure out how do we make this more relevant to people's lives? And this brilliant meteorologist in um, in Australia, Phil Watson, actually said, well, you know, we know when the king tides are going to be. We know when, you know, the perigean spring tides will happen. What if we invite people to get out and see for themselves? That's where we think, you know, the highest high tides of the year now will be by about 2050. So instead of trying to train up everyone else to be coastal geomorphologists or meteorologists or climate scientists, they can go out and witness for themselves what's actually happening. And so we started that project um, really as a social media campaign. So, you know, we let people know when they'd be happening and invited them to go take pictures and um, post on social media. And then a couple of years later, we realized, wow, we're, we're actually building this, um, this hyper-local catalog of flood events. And We'd had a lot of feedback from um, planners and emergency folks um, on both coasts and also in the South that these were actually really valuable pieces of information. Um, you know, every every model, um, well, what's the expression? Every model is uh, every model is wrong, but some are useful. Um, that definitely is true, right? As you know as well um, in coastal management. And so, being able to pinpoint exact locations that do flood during high tide events was actually really helpful to utility managers, you know, wastewater treatment folks, um, and also to planners. And so. Um, I was a part of the team that created Our Coast, Our Future, which is um, the basically the planning tool for California now for sea level rise. And Patrick Barnard, who's an amazing researcher and um, the principal investigator on that project, um, and I were talking about whether it would be possible to use the King Tides project as a way to source images to ground truth the underlying models that are in the Arco Star Future project. The way the way that model was built is um, it's a it's a back cast, it's a hind cast. So what they did is they took um, where flooding would occur during uh, a storm event, an actual storm event that happened, <clears throat> and then we had folks go out during the King Tide to actually ground truth that and say, okay, the model says that this will flood. This flooded during this tide event. We anticipate that it would flood again in, you know, X, Y, Z year in the future. Does that actually happen during high tide events today? And so it was a really cool way to actually get um, get citizen science into some of our planning tools. And, and I find that people are so excited to go out and actually make contributions to this project. I think it's one of the, the top 10 community science projects in the world now or or high in that that amount because people just want to be at the coast and be involved with it. Yeah, I think um, what some folks don't realize is uh, you can actually go back six hours later. So where there's the highest high tide of the year is also the lowest low tide of the year. So there's really great um, opportunities to get a glimpse of the future of sea level rise and then come back a couple of hours later and look for octopus or whatever your jam is. (laughs) (laughs) You, You see the whole phenomena going on right along the coast. So many days, we're just not, we're not attuned to it. And yeah, people do go out and and they'll observe it and then eh, been there, done that. But 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 it's great that people go to the coast. And your um your atlas is another very visual way of looking at 
the coastal experiences. And how did you and Christina come up with this idea? Where did you meet? Well, actually, the idea for this book came from an editor who was familiar with the King Tides Project. And he called me one day, so my editor from the New Press, and basically said, this is such a great way to get people involved in something that will impact their lives. Um, but it's not the really heavy handed, um, like I mentioned before, let's train you up as a coastal geomorphologist approach, which I think a lot of um, a lot of climate science does. You know, there's a lot of expertise which is needed, and it's a really hard area for people who don't have science degrees to get, you know, to get engaged with. And so the King Tides Project was really a way to bring average people into that conversation by changing it from um, very technical models to think about like, hey, how how do you think your life is going to be impacted by this, right? So when, uh, you know, when the airport near you floods, when your route to work floods, what, what happens then? And so the editor, um, Jed Bickman, and I started talking about what that would look like in a book format. And I knew that it. I wanted it to be full of stories of the places that people love, um, because that's what I think. That's what really connects with folks: the places where we um, have our experiences, where we raise our kids, where we have our first kiss. All of these experiences that are tied to these places that are at risk, right? That we may be losing. And so. Um, I had met Christina in uh, Half Moon Bay working on some sea level rise public outreach um, for the county of San Mateo. And so I also, you know, I brought her in because we knew it would be amazing to also have um, something that was highly visual. I think for me, I was that kid who grew up reading Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Like just just open an encyclopedia and dive right in, right? They're so fun. Um, and atlases also had always attracted me because there's so many different ways of engaging with information, right? If you're a graph type of person or, you know, pictures and stories. So we wanted it to be highly visual and for you to be able to open the book anywhere and really dive right in, whether that be a story about what the future might look like or some science that's hopefully explained in a way that's not completely impenetrable or um, she has beautiful uh, sketches throughout of sea creatures. And then the maps that she painted, she actually harvested seaweed and then um, dried it. And the images that she painted are on that seaweed. And so what we did is we got um, all of the scientific data. For example, there's a chapter on Antarctica in the book, and it's about um, the uncertainty around how quickly glaciers are melting. And so um, we had a bunch of different sources of data and information about where territorial claims in Antarctica are and where the ice flows are. And so um, she layered that on, she layered those sources of data onto um, onto the seaweed and then drew these maps there, which is a super different way of looking at that kind of technical information. So that was really, you know, where it came from was wanting to be able to um, offer something very accessible. Um, I think about like my mom, I wrote the book for my mom pretty much. Um, she is super interested. She probably wouldn't call herself an environmentalist, but um, she, you know, she raised me to be one and, and uh, she doesn't have a degree in science. And so a lot of the conversation is 
just not, you know, not really compelling for her. And so, um, so I think of her as my, as my audience, her and the rest of my, you know, big rowdy family that are all across the political spectrum. Um, I, you know, at the time when I started thinking about this, um, climate change was more politically polarized than it is now. I feel like we now are all living through so many floods and disasters and fires that um, it's slightly less politicized. But, you know, I also wanted to make sure that I was focusing on the things that people love rather than getting into some ideological debate, which I think is hopefully long past us now. Hard to say. I've also read Catherine Hayhoe's book recently, and I'm not sure that she would agree with you, but I like your optimism in this. And some of that optimism comes through in the book. I mean, it's got this great format that's fairly um, simple, as you say. You've got these amazing maps that are like maps no one else has ever done. Well, perhaps not that case, but they're, they're not that clear geography. You go in and you say, oh, there's Half Moon Bay. There's San Francisco. You've got this big, broad overview of what's happening around the globe in many cases that are great, great visuals that you have to look at to sort through. I mean, on one hand, they could be artwork, but on the other hand, you start to realize the information that's being conveyed there and and have to sort of drill into it a little bit to really appreciate what's being shown there. So I really liked that. But you've got also this organization into four main elements and, you know, going from the different changes that are being experienced along the coast, the, the chemical changes, the, the thermal changes, the sea level rise changes. How did you, how did you, how did this book come about in that regard? Did you go out and get a bunch of case studies and then put them into interesting boxes or did you start with the boxes or? Oh gosh, there was so much back and forth and oh, it was, um, you've hit upon one of the tragedies, which is there were so many more stories and so many more places um, that we wanted to be able to highlight. And here again, um, our editor Jed was just amazing because of course, when you're like deep in the writing process and if you spent a whole bunch of years like I have looking at potential climate change adaptation solutions in all these areas, you're just too close to the work and it's impossible to be able to edit yourself, right? And so Jed was great. Um, and actually, you know, really made us think hard about what are the like main categories of problems, um, both from a scientific perspective and also, you know, like what people, um, what people may experience and just go with that. And so that's how we got the format of of breaking it into four big chunks. So, um, the impacts that happen as a result of changes in, um, ocean chemistry and what happens as, um, water's warm, then what we, um, you know, what happens as actually storms um, increase and then um, what the impacts of sea level rise will be. So those are the four, you know, big chunks of the book. And then with each of those big chunks or within each of those big chunks, we wanted to match a particular um, scientific issue with a place. And so each place-based story um, is the, is, you know, basically the scene for a particular 
um, scientific inquiry or problem. Um, my favorite, just to illustrate what I'm talking about, because I realize those words <laughs> may not be uh, may not be the most accessible. Um, one of my favorite chapters is the one about uh, Peru, the Peruvian anchovetas. So this is a it's a little fish about five and a half inches long, and it's pelagic and it swims in the Humboldt Current, which runs up the coast of South America, and um, Currents change depending on what's going on with, you know, larger um, climatic systems. And ENSO, which is the basically the southern oscillation, which impacts uh, what's happening with El Nino seasons and La Nina. So it also impacts what's happening with this with this current that this fish live in. And so um, there is, you know, there's a lot of concern about what's happening with our major current systems, um, whether they get weaker you know, whether they're, some of them may actually fail. And if that were to be the case, if there's no more upwelling, which is driving this current system, then there's no more anchovy. And the problem with that is that this little anchovy has become um, this incredible fish that just drives economies all over the place. So it people don't usually eat anchovies, this particular kind, um, raw, but instead um, this anchovy is turned into... Um, you know, uh, pig feed for rural farmers in China. And um, its bodies are also pressed into fish oil tablets and, you know, fish oil supplements that you can get in a prenatal smoothie in LA, right? And it's also traded as a commodity on the stock exchange in New York and London. And so I just love that this little fish is connecting all of these systems, um, all these economic systems that humans have, and all of these very different systems are dependent upon this fish. And for me, um, I wrote that chapter before the pandemic, and I had been thinking a lot while I was writing it about um, supply chains and the fragility of these systems and how we are all more connected than a lot of us may think about on a daily basis. You know, And then the pandemic hit and it really brought this chapter back for me because do you remember first when we like there was no toilet paper and then a couple of months later there were no like microchips and you know you can't get a new fridge you just all of these things that you suddenly couldn't get because of this fragile system that we had um for our supply chains um you know it may be optimized that's great we've got just in time processes for maximum you know consumptive ability but in terms of resilience we clearly have not built a lot of resilience into our um, economic and supply chain systems. And so I think about that when I think about this fish as well. Um, after I had written it, actually, I had um, seen an article about how the there's something called an anchovy regime. And so when anchovies are running and they're really big in population, often um, sardine populations are low at that time and then vice versa, which I thought was like pretty clever as a way to build uh, redundancy and resiliency into that um, ecological system, right? So the predators of these fish will at least have something to eat, whether it be the anchovies or the sardines. And I think, I wonder if there are ways that we could build such similarity into our own or into our own economic systems as ones that exist in our natural ecological systems. Yeah. I mean, that, that salmon anchovy, sardine anchovy situation is one that was going on in Monterey and all the canneries there and, and Cannery Row and, and then the, the crash of the fishery 
that the sardines just vanished and, and the whole community was left kind of wondering what to do next. So that phenomenon goes on all along, you know, the I guess the Humboldt current both ways. Yeah. So it also, I mean, looking at what you did with Pisco and in Peru, there, there's sort of this, here's the situation today. Here are some problems going on. Oh, by the way, we're going to teach you a new word. Um, here's how it links in with the human system. And here's kind of, if you can't relate to what's happening to, to the fish and the ocean, maybe you can relate to it within your own personal experiences other ways. And then this, what's going to happen in 2050? What's the world like then based on the conditions you've already established for this region? It's a great sort of, each one is its own little story and really wonderfully put together. Thank you. Yeah, that was, it was really important to tell stories um, from 2050. You know, for me, I will hopefully still be alive. Um, My children will hopefully be having their own children. And it's, you know, it's really near. It's just, it's so close. It's like next week, you know? And the other thing that was really important to me about that year is that we have all the technology that we're going to have right now to solve the climate crisis. It's whether or not we use it. And so none of those future, you know, future fiction sections in the book are relying on technology that we don't have or political systems that haven't existed. Um, And so all those future scenarios, most of them are um, fairly positive or optimistic because when I think about and talk about climate change, a lot of people get really stuck in the doom and gloom and the fear and the, what can I do? I'm just one person or what can we do? We don't, you know, we don't have the solutions type of thing. And I I don't think that that's true. And so um, those future fiction sections in each chapter is, is a way to um, apply the knowledge technology systems that we have now to that problem to see what kind of future we can build. And so in the Pisco chapter, um, I, I started my career in tech and I have always worked adjacent to technology. Um, I do think that although there are a lot of problems in the industry and with technology, there are a lot of great solutions that can come out of it. And so Pisco is looking at how we can leverage, um, you know, some of the technologies that we have now with satellites and artificial intelligence and actually leverage those for more positive outcomes. One of the things I appreciated is that not all of your futures are looking in in a really optimistic way. Some are identifying that we've gotten um, an intermediate step, but maybe that's not going to be sustainable into the future. Um, A lot of the idea that I got too is that in areas where there was a collective recognition of the situation, and so it became both a a science and a personal um, social phenomena to to address, that those seemed to be the the times when the futures were, were kind of in that optimistic vein. And when we tried to do just sort of one thing and go in that one focus on all our energy into um, seeding the ocean or doing various things that might be um, expedient, 
but weren't collective. Those didn't seem to have as much of a promising future. But was was I reading more into this than you intended? <laughs> no, that's a great <laughs> observation, actually. I hadn't thought about that. But as I think through the chapters, I think you're probably right. Um, and that must be, that must come from the fact that I, I do think that we need to have collective solutions that we are mostly working towards. Um, I also, you know, I also think that there is going to be a lot of loss and, um, and we are just going to need to accept, you know, as a society, we're just going to need to accept a couple of truths that we may not want to think about. Um, one is that there is no more wilderness. This is a construct that we should just put away now and grieve and get beyond. Um, our technologies are able to see every system. You know, there is plastic at the very bottom of the ocean. So we're able to impact every system. And so we need to start managing for every system and not assuming that these places that we don't see on a daily basis will be resilient and that they will heal themselves. Like we broke it. It's time for us to fix it. And that was a really hard one for me to think about how um, the systems, how how what we may have thought about wilderness is no longer the case. Um, the chapter that's in the book, which is about corals is, was really hard for me to write because, um, you know, as a diver and a snorkeler and a, just like a general ocean enthusiast, the um, collapse of corals is just, it's so sad to me. Um, and I also think that there is reason for hope. So we will lose a lot of coral species. We'll lose a lot of resiliency and diversity. And um, I will, you know, never be able to see what I used to see when I was um, in my early 20s diving in these places. And that doesn't mean that I can just turn away and give up, right? That means that we will need to use super corals and we will need to use um, methods of natural resource management that we often don't think of with, you know, pristine wilderness. But um, we we need to start managing for that now. And that is, you know, as you mentioned, a, a collective action first to agree that this needs to happen and then to actually set up the, you know, the policies and the management practices that will allow us to um, be stewards of these common resources. So you've got great chapter titles. Many of them are kind of puns and sort of humorous to start with. And then you you also accompany them with these amazing quotes. And I, I find it interesting that for me, I, I grew up on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And so the Hampton Roads, Virginia, Bye Bye Birdies is, is the one that I, I can relate to from my own childhood. But you've got this wonderful quote there too from Jane Goodall saying, someone once wondered why it is that if a work of man is destroyed, it's called vandalism. But if a work of nature is destroyed, it's often called progress. And that that's what you're getting at, too, the idea that we need to be able to fix some of the things we've broken. We need to recognize that nature is as much a um, an element of what can be changed by our actions for good and for bad, but be accountable for the things that we might have done that aren't aren't all that great for nature. So 
who got to pick the titles? How did those come about? How did you get the quotes? That's the fun stuff in some types of writing. <laughs> yeah, oh, those quotes. Um, some of them were super easy and just kind of fell into our laps and were the beginning inspiration for a chapter. Um, others were, you know, in that process where you've realized that you've gone down a rabbit hole and this chapter actually doesn't need to be about this thing that you've already spent a ton of time doing. And so there were ways to like pull us back from the brink and remind us of what was important there. Um, I think um, I'm trying to think of an example. So the, the Jane Goodall quote actually was one of the last ones that came because I rewrote that. Oh my God, I rewrote that chapter <laughs> a couple of times um, because I was so interested in what happens with um, native species are, that are generalists versus um, specialists. And so that chapter is about the Eastern rail and, um, and it's such a specialist. So it's a secretive, um, secretive marsh bird, which is just an expression also that I loved the idea of that, you know, there are secretive birds um, out there hiding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> it was actually hard to choose the bird too, because there's so many good bird names and so many amazing birds. Um, but this, this was, I eventually settled on this rail because it is a secretive marsh bird whose, um, whose habitat is being shrunk on both sides, right? So as seas rise on one side, the habitat where it likes to live gets wetter and then it can no longer breed there, right? Um, it's, it's just inundated too much. And then on the other side, there is a lot of development on land. And so this bird's habitat, if this were, um, you know, a natural system, as the water slowly rose, then the habitat would slowly change and the bird would be able to um, migrate basically up from up from the receding shoreline. But now there's a lot of development in those areas. You see it, uh, you know, pretty much any area that has a lot of wetlands. San Francisco Bay is absolutely no exception there. And so... So this specialist is going to be outcompeted um, by generalist species, and that um, you know, thinking about corals too, it's a little bit the same thing. It becomes we're you know we're building a world where generalists are going to thrive and specialists are going to die out, and um, that's really sad. You know, it's just when we when we talk about the the great extinction that we're living through now, it's a lot of those specialists, those niche species that are not going to be able to compete. And so when I was writing that chapter, I called a friend of mine just in a complete rage, right? I was so sad about the loss of specialists. And I was like, our world is just going to be raccoons and deer and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> and mosquitoes. Don't forget them. Exactly. Yes. And the roaches. Did you travel to all the places you've written about? So we've been to almost all the places. The pandemic put a little bit of a damper in the um, in the final visiting of a couple of them, but um, we have lived in or visited most of the places on this list, which has been also a great privilege to be able to write about. Um, for me, especially Hamburg. Um, so I lived in Hamburg for about four years, and it's actually how I wound up um, getting a degree in environmental policy and planning. So I went back to school and got a master's degree, and it was because of living um, living in Hamburg. When I was living there, there was a project called Hafen City, which means Harbor City, 
And it was when, so, so Hamburg has a huge deep water port right in the middle of the city. And um, some of that port was decommissioned. And so it was this prime land um, right in the middle of the city that um, the Hamburg city leaders decided to redevelop into this very cool, um, also very expensive, uh, new part of town, um, which has, it's all floodable. So some of the buildings will have, um, the glass in the windows is like three layers thick, right? There's no infrastructure in the bottom floor because it's intended that when huge North Sea storms come ripping up the Elbe River and into Hoffen City, that bottom area can flood. So pedestrian walkways are elevated. Um, like I mentioned, there's no electrical infrastructure on the bottom floor that could short circuit. And so it was this um, really intentional, really amazing reuse of space. There are swales everywhere to soak up flood water. Um, and I got to see, I got to see that come to life. And for me, um, that's actually what, you know, what precipitated me going back to school and um, moving from my, I had, like I mentioned, I had worked in tech in the early part of my career. It wasn't close enough to the oceans for me. It wasn't values driven. And so I went back and was able to, um, based on the inspiration of Hamburg, be able to go and actually, you know, carve out a role for myself in coastal management. Great. So did you have any surprises? I mean, you've researched this for so many years and you've looked at so many different areas where there's some that just went, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was happening. Oh oh my gosh. So many surprises. (laughs) Um, you know, I think, um, actually the, the plastic crisis is really, is really out there now and people are paying a lot of attention to it. It was one of the earliest chapters that, um, I started doing research for, and it was just so gross. Oh God, all the information about all the plastic in the world, um, and how it's winding up on our beaches. The whole chemistry section for me, the changing chemistry section of the book was really tough because it's just, um, uh, it's just overwhelmingly gross how, <laughs> how many chemicals are out there, how much plastic is out there. It was really um, the, the biggest bummer of the book for me um, was wrestling with all these um, you know, just thinking through the consequences of the last century of our love affair with plastics and petrochemicals. And it's not ending anytime soon. I just read an article about um, Legos and that the, about 25 years ago, a ship was carrying Legos across the ocean and it got hit by a rogue wave and millions and millions of Legos were set free to disperse amongst the ocean waves. And for years, they've been washing up along the shore. And, you know, there was this big slug that came in initially with that with that loss. And then it's been sort of dwindling down. But with the tsunami from Tonga, it's peaked up again. And people are starting to see a, a resurgence of, of Legos coming to shore. And because they're plastic, they don't change much as they travel through the ocean. They're not deteriorating. They're not rusting. They're not doing those things. They're just showing up some more. It's, it's sort of a oh, a bellwetter, perhaps, but also this, wouldn't it be fun to be walking along the ocean and see a little Lego octopus and some bird playing around with it and then not eating it, but playing with it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, gosh, I did not know that about the Legos, but I can only imagine. You know, there was a um, a recent project I saw called um, Hashtag Team Seas. So, um, so, so my children are of an age where they're obsessed with video games um, and they don't want to listen to what their bummer mom wants to say about climate change anymore. But I have figured out a new way to reach them. So, um, so my kids, you know, they love video games and there's a couple of YouTubers and Twitch streamers that they like to watch. And um, one of them is named Mr. Beast. And Mr. Beast is a huge environmentalist who is able to reach my kids and, you know, this youngest generation in ways that I cannot. Um, and he has a project called Hashtag Team Seas, which is about um, removing ocean plastic. And it's so funny because his videos and his approach is absolutely not something that anyone working professionally in coastal management would come up with, but it is something that is really um, positive and it's bringing attention to the issue to a new generation. And it's doing it in a way that it's not just the like gross turnoff that a lot of um, thinking and talking about ocean plastics is. And, you know, they're doing beach cleanup type of stuff, which is really important and really great. But it's also downstream of the problem. Right. Like once that once that ocean is or once that uh, plastic is on that ocean. And um, but I just admire so much what he's doing because he's bringing in a new generation to think about these issues. And so once they've thought about it from the hashtag Team C's perspective and Mr. Beast and the way all of these um, you know influencers are talking about it, it's an invitation for them to then think more deeply about, OK, so then, you know, what's upstream of the beach cleanup? What are the things that can be doing? Uh, that can be done both at a policy level and then also at a, um, you know, at a materials science level. We don't need to be putting everything in plastic. Um, and I love some of the work that's happening now around using um, like mushrooms as <laughs> as wrapping um, and other materials. And so I just the the creativity and the play with which this younger generation is approaching some of these issues is actually very inspirational for me after having slogged through, you know, a lot of the science and the consequences. So it's actually what I come back to sometimes when I need a break from the, you know, depressing thoughts I'm having about derelict marine gear. So derelict fishing equipment. Who were some of the people who you, you mentioned a couple of your heroes, Eugenia Clark and Sylvia Earle, but who are some of the, and, and they're both writers, of course, but who are some of the other writers that really influence your work? You, you clearly are an avid reader and you've got quotes from an amazing array of people in your books, but what were some of the, the books that were foundational for you in your thinking about the ocean? Oh my gosh, there are so many. I'm going to, I'm worried about being able to name them all. Um, so it was such a pleasure to be able to research so broadly, you know, every like looking at places everywhere from Antarctica, um, where there's some really cool writers who have joined different kinds of expeditions to, um, you know, what's happening in um, coral reef systems. And there was an amazing book, uh, Coral Whisperers, that was um, a lot of, it was actually that book, Coral Whisperers, was really looking at um, those interviews with coral researchers. And it was a it was a very interesting take on 
what's happening in our oceans by researchers in their own words. And The Outlaw Ocean, which is an amazing book um, by New York Times writer uh, Matt Irvine. And that one is really looking at um, problems of our, you know, our um, commons, right? So the high seas, which are not well regulated um, or managed by any body. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then obviously Kim Stanley Robinson, I'm a huge sci-fi person. So um, I was doing a lot of the research before his latest work came out, the ministry for the future. Um, He'd written about climate change before New York 2140, um, which was way further out than, uh, than what Christina and I did, but it was, you know, he's definitely an inspiration as are a lot of the science fiction writers that I like. And I'm glad you bring Christina back into this. Did did she have any favorite writers she would bring up to you? Yeah, she's like this hidden person within the book that um, <laughs> she's not getting enough play in this discussion yet. <laughs> <laughs> we should have her back. But I would have to say, I mean, it's definitely her work is definitely not hidden. She is uh, an amazing collaborator. And if you, you know, if, Right now, I'm actually, um, as we're talking, I'm looking at some of the pictures from the book. I'm looking at Antarctica, and um, it's definitely not hidden. It's some, it's some really arresting visuals that we have there. Yeah, definitely. The final part of this is, um, what are your favorite beaches? Since you've covered so many locations around the world, do you have a favorite spot you like to go to that you will share with people, not your not your reclusive hidden spot, but your favorite publicly of admitted spot. <laughs> um, yes, my favorite spot is the one that I'm closest to. So right now for me, <laughs> I live in San Francisco and um, it's Ocean Beach, um, which is where I am with my kids a lot on the weekend, which is funny because it's for me, it's actually a very scary beach. I grew up in Santa Cruz, which is protected and not very sharky and doesn't have giant waves and ocean beach is the polar opposite. I, when my kids were smaller, um, you know, I drilled into them, never turn your back on the ocean. And, um, and we still go out there and I'm still never turn your back on the ocean. (laughs) Think about the sneaker waves out here. Um, but you know, despite the fact that it's sometimes a little bit grungy and, always a little bit dangerous. It is still, you know, where we go. Um, the, they closed our, our city administrators closed the, uh, the main basically freeway. It's a highway that runs right along the coast, um, during the pandemic. And then they reopened it recently to cars, uh, Monday through Friday, which has got a lot of residents, um, really angry. Actually, everyone's angry on both sides. It's closed during the weekends to cars, which means that it's this amazing resource for bicyclists and people who want to walk and um, people who want to be able to just be at the coast. Um, but then drivers don't like it because they can't drive there. So it's interesting to me to see what will happen. It's a um, it's a great like battle to show exactly what some of these issues are, right? Everyone wants to be able to have access to that resource, the beach, and to use it in the way that they find most appropriate. However, um, these are often incompatible uses. So how do we as a civilized society figure out what we're going to do with that space in order to, you know, meet everyone's needs? You're bringing a lot into a very wonderful beach and, and the whole societal questions going on with it. 
And um, as one closing remark, I have to thank you for a new word, transilience, which is an amazing word. And part of your book and part of your closing is, is the idea that we need to have these major jumps sometimes to become resilient again or to introduce resilience in that it's not necessarily always going to be a, a steady progressive change. And I think Ocean Beach is probably a good example of that from what can happen throughout the day, throughout the year, and all of the amazingness you see there that it's it's never going to be the same the next day. There's not an, a continuous trend going on there, but it's more that that rapid change. Um, so thank you for that word. And maybe I've misused it completely, and I'm sorry for that, but it was a great word to to learn about. Oh, absolutely. And actually, we can bring Christina back in here for that. This was something that she was really interested in with her research. Um, it's a word that comes from geology. And it's the sort of when, you know, you'll see if you look at um, geologic time, and if you look at, you know, a rock or something, you'll see that abrupt shift, usually in the color, the coloration of a rock formation or a cliff face. And that's, you know, that's an abrupt change to a different time. When, um when our fossil record is um, looked at, we were also experiencing that massive shift, that kind of transilience. And so Christina did a lot of research and work on thinking about um, thinking about what that means and how we can um, engineer our societies to be more resilient to the kind of transilience that we need to uh, need to be working through now. I probably also slaughtered it, so we should definitely have her uh, speak to transilience because it's, a, it's an amazing concept and she did a lot of work with it. Or better yet, everyone should read your book. And I realized I didn't really introduce your book very well at the beginning of this. So in closing, do you want to let everyone know the title of your book, how to get it, where it's available, and all those things? Sure. Yeah. Um, the book is called The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis. And it's available anywhere the books are sold. My favorite is to go to your you know, local independent bookseller and get a copy from them. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Shorewords. I think this time with Marina has been both educational and inspiring, and I hope that it will encourage you to look differently at your favorite beach. Till next time, enjoy the coast and your favorite views toward the shore.